This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 91, February the 26th, 1985. I'd like to begin today by dealing with the question raised by several of you in an Easy Chair some time ago and in position paper 56. I criticize the principled approach which has become so popular in recent years in certain circles. Now, the questions raised uh, I did not care for because what the questioners asked was, did you have so-and-so in mind when you dealt with the principled approach? Were you criticizing this or that person? And the answer is emphatically no. All of the people whose names were mentioned are people who are friends of mine. I don't agree with them on this point, but I wasn't thinking of them. I was thinking of so many people who have raised the question of the principled approach with me. I don't like to deal with personalities. You may recall last time I concluded with a story about one of the old Brooklyn Dodgers pitchers and his adultery and his tremendous capacity for self-deception. Well, I did not mention his name, although uh, it has been written up and other writers have not hesitated to mention his name. What happened was some 30 years ago. Perhaps, hopefully, the man has changed since then. Why mention his name? The story was a very revealing one. Men do have, all people, a remarkable capacity for lying to themselves, for believing in their own lies. That was the point of the story, not the name of the picture. Well, the same is true of my comments about the principled approach. Let me say emphatically and strongly with all the... Uh, positiveness I can muster. I think it is wrong. I think it is wrong. Let me say that all of us have been brought up in a culture which talks about principles to the point that we all echo this kind of thinking. But the principled approach is a part of Greek philosophy, of ideas versus particulars. It's an abstraction. Now, our faith is anti-abstractionism. We believe that it is not principles we are commanded to obey, but a very specific law of God. The law of God is not made up of a lot of ideas. It represents specific commands. These commands reveal the moral nature of God, his justice. Moreover, central to our faith are not principles, but Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not a principle. He is not an abstraction. He is a person, the divine human person. And we are not commanded to follow principles, but Jesus Christ. 
one of the greatest offenses to Greek philosophy, and this is why Paul called the gospel an offense and foolishness to the Greeks, is simply this. Truth is defined as a person, not an abstraction. It is Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now that's hostile to the whole world of principles. We are not commanded to obey principles, but the law of God, and to be members one of another, members of Jesus Christ. That's not a principle. It's putting life into relationship one with another in terms of God's requirement, God's law. Whenever we talk about the principled approach, we are reflecting Greek philosophy. Let me add that none of these peoples whose names have been mentioned by you are anti-Christian to the least degree. They are all earnest Christians. But whether it is myself or you or the next person, if we talk about principles, we are at that point forgetting our faith. We're forgetting that we believe in the incarnation, not in principles. We believe that the Word made flesh, before he was made flesh, was still the divine person, not a principle so that the Logos, the Word, from all eternity was the second person of the Trinity, never a principle. Well, now another thing. Last time I dealt with the Victorians and the fact that Victorian culture had converted even the ordinary middle-class dinner into a show, into theater, you dressed for dinner. Everything on the table was to be a magnificent display so that no matter how simply you lived, if you were of the middle class, you converted dinner into theater. Well, this was not all. Another area of theater was clothing. The Renaissance turned clothing into theater. All kinds of time was spent and vast sums of money into making your garments a tremendous display of wealth. They were designed to be as imposing as possible. There was no item in your clothing which was not intended to convey an impression, a theatrical impression, to deal with a very vulgar aspect of that theater, which was openly used by the nobility, the royalty, by one and all, the codpiece. The codpiece covered the male genital organs. It was built up in size until it became bigger and bigger, it was a form of macho bragging. It was part and parcel of the whole of Renaissance clothing. It was theater. Now, 
we don't understand the Puritans, and especially another group, the Quakers, without understanding this item, clothing as theater. The Quakers carried it to the nth degree. They rebelled so intensely against this really insane emphasis on garments, and garments as intended to enhance an image that was flattering to the ego, an image of rampant sexuality. Everything was done to build up, for example, the female breast, to convey an image of imposing and uh, impressive sexuality, both in men and in women. This was the emphasis. The ironic fact is that by contrast to the overly splendid, uh, splendid uh, clothing of the Cavaliers, the Puritan and the Quaker plain garb was attractive by comparison. In fact, it gave uh, a particularly attractive look uh, to Quaker girls and Puritan girls. However, with the Restoration, there was a return to the Renaissance ideal. The Enlightenment was very much given to the same kind of thinking. And only in America did you have a very extensive uh, manifestation of the Puritan standard. Those who pretended to be of the English gentry, this was especially true of those Southerners who pretended to uh, have an aristocratic family background, the English standard was maintained. But by and large, most Americans uh, preferred plain garb. And this ultimately took over after the War of Independence so that with the emphasis on the people, the uh, knee breeches and uh, perfumed wigs went out even for gentlemen. It was no longer popular. However, there was a reintroduction of the kind of uh, emphasis that was prominent in Europe on clothing, on dress as theater. The man who was very instrumental in uh, reviving this kind of thinking was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Wouldn't you know it? So much that is evil in the United States stems from the transcendentalists, and in particular from Ralph Waldo Emerson. We owe the war that broke forth in 1860 to the efforts of these men. Otto Scott, in his book, The Secret Six, now unfortunately out of print, develops that. Now, one of the statements made by Emerson I'm going to deal with very briefly. This weekend... On a flight, I picked up a copy of the TWA Ambassador for February 1985. The major article by Clinton Morris is entitled, Tailor Made. 
Clinton Morris describes himself as a yuppie. He says, clothes make the man, or at least the heading for the article, uh, and nothing he knew makes so fine a specimen as a custom-designed or bespoke English suit. Last fall, he, the author, kept a long dreamed-of date with a London tailor and took his perplexed wife along as chaperone. What follows is a true story, a personal story of one man's dream come true. Well, it is interesting that Clinton Morris, in describing his dream of fulfilling the movie model of the English gentleman, uh, when he went to London, made a point to dress from head to foot English fashion to have a tailor-made suit, and so on. Because he felt there was at least a germ of truth in the observation of Ralph Waldo Emerson's friend, quote, being perfectly well-dressed gives a feeling of tranquility that religion is powerless to bestow, unquote. Now, that sentence, however... Uh, standoffish, Emerson was in quoting it, and Emerson was standoffish on everything, including the things he himself favored. It reflected the emphasis on appearances that marked these men. Having denied the reality of the world of God, they had made central the world of man. Accordingly, it became essential for them to stress the world of man. Human relations takes the place in Emerson of our relationship to God. Accordingly, even though he might be a little amused at the emphasis on dress, it was logical and basic for him to see the truth of what his friend had said. As a result, Americans began to be more and more concerned with appearance. Look sometime in a paper at what passes for high fashion or the new fashions and how prominent the grotesque sometimes is in the fashion shows. Why the grotesque? One designer in an interview not too long ago on television stated frankly that her clothes could only be worn for two or three months and a few times. The price required of them was very, very considerable. Why only two or three times? Well, the purpose of the clothes was to create a shock of attention. After a few months, you need another type of shock, something to knock their eyes out, as it were. Well, that's clothing as theater. Now on to another subject. A number of questions. I believe these came from uh, 
Belkarut. First of all, a question on nationalism, nation-states. What should one's loyalty be? Well, first of all, the modern state and all nations since the times of tribes are arbitrary and uh, emphatically not uh, natural entities in the sense that they, all the people are homogeneous. This is not true, as I pointed out, oh, two, three months ago, of any of the countries in the world. They all represent a large number of minorities. France prides itself on its French culture, but it is a nation of minorities. It is a collection of a variety of peoples. The character, the outlook, the temperament in the different parts of France is very different. This is true of Spain. It is true of all modern countries. So that to speak about a nation as some kind of natural entity is nonsense. A nation is an arbitrary civil area. Why should there, by the way, be a boundary between Canada and the United States? And before long, we can say, why should there be a boundary between uh, Mexico and the United States? At the rate we're going now, we'll have more Hispanics here than a good many Hispanic countries. In fact, we already have more than some Central American countries. I believe we have more Jews in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So, what should constitute a nation is a question. Well, what constitutes a nation is a civil government. What should constitute it is some kind of unity religiously, because you can have no common idea of law if you do not have some kind of common faith. Moreover, it requires, therefore, within the country, not only a belief in their faith, but missionary zeal concerning it. We have had a larger percentage of immigrants in the years prior to 1920 than we have now. But we took care of that because with a strongly Christian faith, we absorbed these people. We were eager to absorb them economically and religiously. We had an aggressive missionary policy. We wanted to help those people. So they would pour in. They would fill what we today call the slums and ghettos of New York City and other major cities. But in not too many years, they would move out because they would advance themselves. 
I know that a good many years ago when I was a young man, I stayed in one such mission on Manhattan. And the turnover in the population there was not too many years. The people would move in speaking a foreign language. There would be foreign language shops and restaurants. They would be absorbed by the churches of the area, Catholic and Protestant. They would begin to move out as they increased in prosperity. And the results were dramatic and remarkable. What has happened is that Americans have begun to lose their hold on faith and their confidence. And with that, you can't communicate much. But we must remember that the strength of the United States has been its immigrant peoples. We're all descendants of immigrants. Maybe one generation back, maybe five or six. But all of us, without exception, come from immigrant stock. Now consider what that means. When you look and people who have traveled back to their home countries after one, two, or three generations to look up their forefathers' home community and relatives have found it a very wonderful experience. They go back to a village in Sweden and they find everything lovely. Or to a village in Ireland and they're deeply moved. They find the kindliness and uh, gentleness of the people wonderful. And they feel a little bit loud and aggressive by comparison. But some of the more intelligent find themselves distressed because there isn't the initiative, the drive to improve that they find among their fellow Swedes and fellow Irish or fellow Scots or fellow whatever, that they find among their own kind here. Well, consider the fact it was one out of seven or eight Swedes who left in the last century and came to this country. It was a very high percent of the Irish who left and came here. The Germans, I believe, are the uh, largest group of non-English speaking uh, immigrants to this country. I may be wrong on that, but if my memory serves me co uh, correctly, that's true. All right, put yourself in the place of an immigrant. If you migrate to another country, you've got to learn a new language, a new ways. Put yourself in the place of migrating to Brazil. The language there is Portuguese. If you're more than 17 or 18, you're never going to learn to speak it without an accent. 
So you're going to be an outsider in your language all your life. This means that you're going to be, so to speak, slow witted. Because your mother tongue is the tongue you speak in and think in most clearly. As a result, you're be as impressive speaking in a foreign language. You've got to think hard to call up the words, and you are an outsider. Well, the fact is, these immigrants manifest a remarkable courage, character, and strength in being ready to tackle that handicap. Remember, too, some of them were well off in the old country. They left more than a few of them in terms of principles, faith. There I use that word, principles. We're all children of our times. Okay, they left in terms of their faith. Or they left in protest, as many Germans did, against militarism. Well, so much for that question. I gave more time than I intended to, but... Uh, Another part of the question from uh, Bill Carruth. What should be a crea creationist attitude towards savages? An evolutionist believes them to be primitive, struggling upward on the same path of cultural evolution, which we once followed, and acts to advance their progress. If we recognize that all men had cities and technology within Adam's lifetime, what are they? What do we owe them? Savages in today's world are not primitives. They are degenerates. Do they need anything but the gospel? Well, Bill, you, in a sense, have answered your question. That's what they need, the gospel. And uh, there are evidences, for example, that uh, the Eskimos were centuries ago far superior to what they were 50 years ago. They degenerated. The same is true of the blacks in Africa. There are evidences there of a higher culture earlier. And if we believe our faith, we can believe that our culture or any other can so degenerate. Now, in one of our early journals of Reconstru uh, Christian Reconstruction, we reprinted an article, a summary of his research by J.D. Unwin. Unwin was the man whose monumental work was entitled Sex and Culture. He demonstrated therein that you could posit on a mathematical basis that given a certain decline in sexual morality before and after marriage, the cultural level would be at a certain level, low and high, depending on the sexual morality. That uh, you could reach a dead level with promiscuity where people could not count beyond the fingers of their hands. Or you could reach a high level, such as Christian civilization has, if, and here I will use not Unwin's terms, but mine, 
If you follow God's law and are obedient to it, you can create a high culture. Unwin said that three generations of total license before and after marriage, and you're going to be on the dead level culturally with people unable to count beyond the fingers of their hands. Well, consider what's happening in this country culturally and educationally. Consider what's happened since 1940 and how we are lowering educational standards and how our ability to work and to perform has declined. Well, now on to another subject. A very interesting uh, book recently public, published and available, Christians Under Fire. This is about Nicaragua. The author is Humberto Belli, B as in boy, E-L-L-I. Belli is a former Marxist and a collaborator with the Sandinistas who was converted to Christianity in 1977. He is now in this country. This book can be purchased from the Puebla Institute, P.O. Box 520, Garden City, Michigan, 48135, for $8. Puebla is spelled P as in Paul, U-E, B as in boy, L-A. Now, what he describes here is what the Marxists have done in Nicaragua and what their pattern of operation increasingly is. One of their fixed premises, and I quote, is no revolution without the Christians, unquote. No revolution without the Christians. What does that mean? It means that you work to deceive the Christians. You call attention to every evil that uh, exists and blame the regime for it and see not reform but revolution as the only solution. Then you work to delude the Christians and little by little isolate those Christians who wake up to what you are doing. You work also to line up foreign Christians so that they keep themselves and their countries blinded to the issues. He cites among those who are blinded in this country, Christian Century, a modernist magazine, and Ron Sider, supposedly an evangelical leader, seminary professor, who says he's a good fundamentalist, but certainly gives... Uh, as much support as possible to the Nicaraguan Marxist regime. He writes in Sojourners magazine and other publications that uh, the Sandinistas are well-intentioned social reformers. He uh, 
says with regard to the murder of the Mesquito Indians, that it was due to the Sandinistas' ignorance and inexperience in dealing with peoples, and not because of any bad intentions. He says that if the United States would stop interfering, the Mosquitoes could solve their problems as though the Mosquitoes were being manipulated by the U.S. Let me add there, the Mosquito Indians are living in poverty. We are not helping them. We've cut off aid. They are leaders among the freedom fighters, and they are in want of food and medicine, a high TB rate among them. They are, by the way, predominantly converts uh, as a result of the work of Moravian missionaries beginning over a hundred years ago. The Marxists in Nicaragua, Belay says, have redefined Christianity and uh, basic to this uh, redefinition, and I quote, sin is identified with unjust social structures, namely capitalism. Salvation or deliverance from sin is to be achieved by armed revolution. The revolutionary cadre, the party, acts as the Messiah, leading people to the true kingdom, socialism. Jesus sided with the poor, so Christians must side with them politically, fighting against their oppressors. As God incarnated himself in flesh, so Christians must incarnate themselves in a concrete and temporal political project, Marxist revolution. Jesus himself is reinterpreted as the first revolutionary, a zealot engaged in the political liberation of Israel. The revolutionary Christian claim that uh, Jesus Christ was not enough. For them, Christianity needs the mediation of a historical theory and a revolutionary praxis, Marxism, in order to make the promises of the gospel effective. As a result, everything is done to discredit those Christians who oppose the regime. One particularly disgusting episode is that uh, in 1982, the government publicly announced that Father Bismarck Carballo, spokesman for the Catholic Archbishop's Office, had been caught in a sexual incident. And uh, the whole incident is a particularly shameful one because what, was hap what happened was that Father Carballo received a call to visit a parishioner uh, who was ostensibly desperately in need of help. He called. When he entered the house, a man armed with a pistol uh, ordered him to undress immediately. Then, as soon as he did so, the police who were waiting outside in hiding came in and dragged him naked to the, seat, uh, to the street. 
And then, of course, pictures were taken of him as supposedly uh, being uh, chased out by an offending husband uh, who, was, uh, who had caught him in the act of adultery. However, uh, they never could make up their mind who was the husband. The story, as far as the local people were concerned, backfired. But it has been useful because they publicized the incident internationally. This is what we're dealing with, say the Marxists, this kind of corruption. Everything is done to justify this kind of thing. When the Pope visited, he was subjected to all kinds of interference. Uh, the crowds were not allowed to congregate, and so on. Violence is justified and called a necessary reaction to evil and to injustice. In fact, an official statement was concerning mob actions. These actions were the most civilized response that people could offer to reactionaries, unquote. It's an important little book. I urge you to get it. No revolution without the Christians. Think about that. And remember that virtually every seminary in the United States has liberation theologians who are determined to perpetuate the same kind of thinking here, who are reinterpreting the whole of the faith in terms of Marxism. The liberation theologians are at work. As a matter of fact, I heard the other day of one congregation that refused to believe that such and such a person, a leader in their church, was anything but a very fine and devout man. Well, the evidence is overwhelming that he is a liberationist, but uh, he is a soul of piety when he goes out to speak across the country. Now on to another book. J. Peter Grace, chairman of the President's Private Sector Survey on Cost Control, has written a couple of books, one of which published at 1495 by Collier Macmillan is entitled Burning Money, The Waste of Your Tax Dollars. I think this book, which is very readable, is must-reading because it tells you how insane profligate, and sinful the conduct of Congress has become. Our money is being dis uh, burned, literally, uh, by these bureaucrats. They can't get rid of it fast enough for any and every kind of folly. And the taxpayer is responsible, as he says, because it's pork barrel items that are responsible for this. 
Everybody wants, for example, a military base close by because it brings millions of dollars into the local economy. So untold money that would be useful in national defense is spent maintaining a vast number of military bases across country that have only one reason, to satisfy certain congressmen. They can't shut them down. We do have a large defense budget, but most of it is pork barrel items written in on the demands of congressmen. Perhaps to give you the flavor of the book, and this sets the temper and you it goes from bad to worse with this story, let me read to you the opening page or so. I quote, Most people think that the government is a rather boring subject. Absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the government in some respects is a, ver a veritable treasure house of one-liners. Lurking between the pages of many a seemingly stale government report is the kind of hilarious raw material that any stand-up comedian would give his eye teeth to get hold of material that would leave the audience rolling in the aisles. Unfortunately, in the government's comedy routine, it it's usually the taxpayer who plays the unwitting straight man. Here's an example. A federal government dishwasher approaches her supervisor and complains that the rinse water is too hot, much too hot for her hands. So she has decided that, frankly, she just can't continue in the dishwashing profession unless something drastic is done at once. All right, says the supervisor, we'll get you rubber gloves. The dishwasher tries out her new rubber gloves, but soon returns to her supervisor, this time complaining that the gloves irritate her skin. Now, do you assume that this luckless employee was transferred to some other sort of job? Ah, then you don't understand the government's ways. Now, this victim of uh, dishpan hands was instead classified as permanently disabled, thus entitled to collect full on-the-job disability pay for the rest of her life. She can go soak those unfortunate dishpan hands in the soothing waters of Acapulco Bay, while the rest of us are working hard to support her with our tax dollars. An isolated incident of government foolishness, you might think? Just an amusing fluke? Unfortunately, it is no fluke. In fact, that disabled dishwasher is symptomatic of the unbelievably wasteful and irrational policies and practices of the federal government. You see, a civil service worker is eligible for disability retirement at any age after five years on the job if he or she is unable to perform any one essential function of her current job. Many jobs involve dozens of so-called essential functions, unquote. Well, what Grace says is that you're providing the wrong kind of incentives for people who 
are in the civil service. Now, this is one type of thing that David Stockman was talking about when he attacked pensions recently. But it's not what you heard about. So, what you got instead was a lot of nonsense about uh, the uh, unfortunate people who would suffer if they were cut back, the bleeding heart mentality. Let me read another passage. Uh, I have time for one more, I think. A man in California was assessed 2,400 in back taxes by the IRS. So he decided to send the Internal Revenue Service six hammers in lieu of the cash. He informed the IRS that after reading about what the government pays for them, he figured he should pay his debts in hammers. If those smart fellows in the Pentagon are paying $436 for hammer, he wrote, no doubt you clever gentlemen of the IRS will accept these hammers at the same value, in which case the six hammers more than covered the $2,400 owed. Actually, the man would have saved postage by mailing the IRS 26 three-penny screws, for which the Defense Department has been paying $91 each. How did the government manage to pay $436 for a hammer that could be purchased in a neighborhood hardware store for $7. The Navy, the purchaser of the hammer, followed the, uh, provided the following explanation. Added to the basic $7 cost of the hammer was $41 to pay general overhead costs for the engineering staff involved in mapping out the hammer problem. This included 12 minutes in secretarial time preparing the hammer purchase order, 26 minutes of management time spent on the hammer purchase, and 2 hours and 36 minutes the engineer spent on determining the hammer's specifications. $93 for the 18 minutes it took for mechanical subassembly of the hammer, 4 hours for engineers to map out the hammer assembly process, 90 minutes spent by managers overseeing the hammer manufacturing process, 60 minutes for a project engineer to ensure the hammer is properly assembled, 54 minutes spent by quality control engineers examining the hammer to ensure it did not have any defects, and 7 hours and 48 minutes devoted to support activities involved in assembling the hammer. $102 went toward manufacturing overhead. $37 for the 60 minutes the, spare part, the spares repair department spent gearing up for either repairing or finding parts should the hammer ever break. $2 for material handling overhead representing the payroll costs for the people to wrap the hammer and send it out. $1 for wrapping paper and a box. This brought the subtotal of costs for the hammer to $283. This figure was increased by $90 representing the defense contractor's general administrative costs and another $56 was added in a finder's fee for locating the specific hammer that fitted the Navy's needs. 
Another $7 was added as the capital cost of money for the hammer purchase. A Navy spokesman explained that large defense contractors are permitted to charge off general costs against all contracted items, and that in the case of relatively inexpensive items, these costs may appear disproportionately large. I have to agree. $436 for a $7 hammer does appear to be a disproportionately large price to pay. The Defense Department is an easy target, but most of the self-styled marksmen, especially in Congress, are likely as not to wind up shooting themselves in the foot. That is, critics are quick to call for cuts in crucial defense projects they don't like for political reasons, but they fight with all their might to preserve the most outrageous instances of Pentagon inefficiency and boondoggle if it has any bearing on a congressman's home district, or if it affects any of his constituents, or if it raises the faintest protest from the congressman's pent branch of the service. The military isn't without guilt in this game. Military lobbyists play on congressional loyalties in trying to get new military programs started or to get existing programs expanded or continued. Almost two-thirds of all congressional districts either contain or are next to some military facility. This proximity results in what's called reciprocal pork barrel in Washington. An obsolete military facility is maintained in one district, and in return the representative of that district will vote to continue funding for a weapons system that even the military may no longer want or support. Out of 4,000 Defense Department installations in America, only 312 are considered significant and necessary. Unquote. Now, many of the regulations that require this endless processing and all the additional costs are created by Congress. So it's a mess. Well, our time is up. I'd like to share with you this one little item from the Farm Journal for January 1985. It's a cartoon. A farmer and his wife and son at work loading bales of hay. And the farmer tells his son, the day I first met your mother, I noticed her rough, calloused hands, and that was it. Love at first sight. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's it for this installment of our Easy Chair. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.